I didn't record that. Okay. Wow, that was a great intro. I missed that. That was the best. Okay, I'm going to read this, and I want to read this story to kind of place it as a visual as I reflect on this idea of church for the next little chunk of time. So this is the book of Acts, chapter 20. Paul and Luke have been traveling amongst the Mediterranean on these missionary journeys, planting churches. And they're heading back to Jerusalem, and yeah, Paul doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows danger awaits. And on their way, they stop off in the Mediterranean at this little island, and Paul sends a letter to call out his friends from the city of Ephesus, a church that he had helped plant and lived with for three years. So here it is. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, in the midst of severe testing by plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going on to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, It is more blessed to give than receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Then they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him, and what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And I love the line actually just spilling over into chapter 21. Luke, Luke says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed away. And I think, other than being a really long scripture, <laughs> yeah, when I was praying, I felt like the Lord led me to that story. And he just said, this, this is church. Right? And I know I'm like a theology nerd, and I'm in some role in this community. People culturally would think of me as the pastor, a pastor. But I just long for this to be a shared experience of the Christian life and community. I long to be old and gray, sitting in a rocking chair with some people in this room and other rooms I've been in, that I could, with Paul, 
say we serve the Lord with great humility and tears, right? That, that church is not a program, it's not just an organization, it's not a brand, it's real relationships, really submitting and entrusting our lives to God and taking on all the risk and craziness and mess that comes with that. And I think what this scripture speaks to me is this idea of church as an identity. Church is not a noun, and it's not even just simply a group of people. It's an identity that we are invited to take on and participate in. I think this is fundamental. I'll try not to labor this point too long because I could talk for an hour just on this topic, but I think trying to simplify things culturally, I travel to Africa every other year to help teach in this missionary training school with an organization called Poetis. And my African brothers and sisters over there have helped teach me this little proverb, this African wisdom proverb. It's Buntu proverb. It says, I am because we are. And it's a statement of identity rooted in community. And in the West, we are a culture built upon a foundation, enlightenment, 17th century, of a dictum more along lines of, I think, therefore I am. We are a culture built upon a very robust individualism. Our cultural waters that we swim in, the zeitgeist of our lives from the moment we're born to old, is that we are fundamentally autonomous individuals. And I think exposing ourselves to these other cultures helps us kind of see and realize oh, that's not the only way to think about the self. That's not the only way to think about what it means to be human. And the start of our faith is Jesus' call to each of us as his disciples, a call which does come to us as individuals. But I find it so interesting that the identity, as we come to him as a disciple, the identity that he speaks and that God speaks over us is no longer individual. What is gospel identity at the core? It is that you are a son or a daughter of the living God, which means that we are his friend, and it means we are friends, and we are brothers and sisters. And I just find it so fascinating that at the most foundational level, God is saying that our identity, who we are most irreducibly, and what all of us deep down long to hear, is to have our relational status defined with God and each other. Right at the bedrock of our identity, at the bedrock of the gospel message, is a message of relational status. You are my son, you are my daughter, which means you're brothers and sisters. It's a message of belonging. It's a message of inherently what we all long for at the deepest core is to be part of a family, a community. And we could do a long narrative biblical reflection from Genesis 2 all the way to the New Testament. The biblical narrative is robustly social in its anthropology. To be a human being is to be a part of a community. There is no such thing as an individual human in the modern Western hard black and white sense, right? Who here did not come from a woman? <laughs> Who here was not born by another human? and probably would have died if you weren't nurtured by a family. We are from birth, from conception, inherently a part of a community and 
interdependent upon others. And it is Genesis 2 all the way to Paul's language in, in his letters that we represent God's image only as community. It is male and female in Genesis 2 that God created us in his image. It is not male created in his image, female in his image. It is only in relationship to another person that we can represent God. Which when we think about it, if we want to do some like kind of mind-blowing philosophical reflection, God and his fundamental being is relationship. We worship a social trinity. We worship a God expressed three in one. Think about this idea for a second, that before anything was created, before matter existed, before reality or time existed, there was relationship. The most eternal thing in this world is relationships. And Jesus is only God in his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. And a quick story. I was working in, in Hawaii, and I was running a retreat on the north shores of the Big Island. And we're at this awesome space. It's in a neighborhood of some other local Hawaiians in this small community. And we're running this week-long retreat, and we have to be sensitive to noise and sound so we aren't you know, disrespectful and a nuisance to the neighbors. And so we have a hard, firm policy that there's no amplified music or sound after 9 PM. And I'm the school leader for this retreat. And I hear someone up in the main building playing loud music, and I'm like, oh gosh, I have to go discipline them and deal with this. So I'm walking up, it's 10.30 at night, and I come into the room, and I'm expecting this you know, 18-year-old immature student, and it's one of my staff who's sitting over in the corner with a guitar plugged in and just jamming away with the speakers blasting him in the face. And he's just singing worship. Some of you guys know him. His name's Ike Huffman. He's one of my best friends in the whole world. And, and I'm supposed to tell him to stop, but the minute I walk in the room, his, and if you know Ike, you know this about him, he is just so pure-hearted. And his worship is literally so pure and beautiful that I don't want to stop him. And so I just sit down in the back of the room, and instead of reprimanding him, I just sat alone in the corner, and I just worshiped with him for probably 20 minutes, and I, I'll never forget this moment. I'm sitting there worshiping, and again, I don't know, is this me, is this God, but I'm having some prayer time, and, and I felt like the Lord said one of the most profound things he's ever spoken to me. I'm looking here at my best friend, Ike, as he's sitting worshiping Jesus, and I felt like the Lord said, relationships are the only eternal thing you build in this life. Relationships are the only eternal thing you build in this life. And as it's been nine years since that moment, and, and every year that passes, I just feel like the weight and the, the profoundness and the, the mystery and the invitation of that is so deep. Right? Do we live our lives that way? Do we believe that the relationships we're forming with other human beings are the most important things we could give our time to? Do we believe that when Christ calls us to come and follow him, that he brings us into this new way of seeing humanity, that it is shared, that it is, like Matt said, koinonia, and fundamentally that starts in the church, 
as a bunch of people started following Jesus and oh, we live in the same area and all of a sudden we are a local church. And it goes beyond that to the church historic and the church global, the church in the kind of grand, mysterious, invisible sense. And then it goes even beyond that to what if we viewed all people that way? What if we viewed people who don't follow Jesus yet that same way? And we looked at them and said, you are my brother, you are my sister. And we offered ourselves and our gifts and our talents and our time in the same way that we would to our brother or sister or mom or dad. This is to receive the church as identity. To receive this as a new way, like Matt said earlier, to be human. To see ourselves, to see our vocations, to see our jobs, to see our lives, to see our neighbors. We do not absorb or lose our individuality, but the call to follow Christ is a call to open our lives to people again. And with that comes a lot of messiness and a lot of collateral things that we probably don't want. But again, I would tell us this, I'd challenge us with this. Church and community is the mechanism by which Jesus wants to mature you and form you. Mature us and form us to be like him. Because it is in the confrontation of another human that our delusions about ourself or our grandeur are punctured. It is in the conflict of relationship that self-awareness and exposure comes to our own brokenness and the depths to which it penetrates. And without that intimacy of other relationships, we will go on living thinking we are so great and perfect, right? And our growth and our maturity will just level out. So working this out in real life, we have found over the years three kind of ideas and different communities. I would hope every church is communicating the same ideas. We're not trying to communicate something profound or new or different. We hope this is very old, very biblical and very true to our deepest human experiences. But we have found three ideas to be really helpful that the church is fundamentally a group of people, right? What separates the church as community from just any human community? I would say prayerful, family, on mission. And I'll just offer a few comments on each of these briefly. Prayerful. Prayerful people are people who live in dependency on the God revealed in Christ, on the God that Jesus reveals. And I think that's important to say, that our understanding of who God is, is refracted and expressed through the life teachings, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, if it's a different God we're praying to, that might be a good thing, it might be good for your mental health, it might draw a community together, but it's not the body of Christ, it's not the church. To be the church is to be a community of people who live in dependency on the God revealed in Christ. It begins with this posture in the biblical narrative, one of the most foundational teachings and paradigms and something I've rambled about it in other teachings for a long time. It starts with a posture of the fear of the Lord. And without the fear of the Lord, every other fear and anxiety will come and rule our life. So it starts with the fear of God, and then that wipes away the other fears, and in comes pouring his unfailing love. In the biblical canon of scripture, 
Again and again, when God shows up, people drop to their knees, people fall on their faces. When they experience the reality of God, the natural response is the fear of the Lord. And the first thing the angel says, or the first thing Jesus says is, do not be afraid. And from that little blip second of the fear of God, it gets filled and washed away and flooded with his unfailing love. And prayer is taught and modeled by Jesus. And this is not just the narrow practice of prayer, like something I do in the quiet place or in the morning or in a, in a warehouse by the dirty duck, but prayer is a lifestyle that Jesus embodies, right? His rhythms of prayer lead to a certain way of being in the world, ultimately culminating in his death and resurrection. And again, going back to the very beginning, the cross is not simply just a ticket to believe the right things and get to heaven, but the cross is our model as his apprentices of a way of being in the world, a posture of humility, brokenness, sacrifice. And we see it even in the scripture we just read about Paul. Paul sees his whole life oriented in line with Christ's life of the Holy Spirit's telling him hardships, trials, prison awaits you. And most of us would be like, all right, let's go the other way. And Paul's like, no, this makes sense. This is the way of following Jesus. This is what a life of prayer looks like. A life of hiddenness and meekness and the Beatitudes. A life of stepping into risk and fears because we have such dependency on the one who guides us. Number two, family. From our shared foundation in Christ, we live in this radical openness and mutuality towards one another. And with the Lord's help, we form an unlikely family with our brothers and sisters. We eat food together, we share joy, we experience pain, we encourage one another, we challenge each other. It's messy, it's full of conflict, it's full of personalities and our own broken pasts and stories and it all gets mashed in there. And by the grace of God, if we don't quit and give up and bail on it, it actually becomes the mechanism and vehicle of our growth and maturity. The Roman Catholic tradition has a, has a great theology. There's a, a writer named Ronald Goldheiser who talks all about how we should go to church with people we don't like. <laughs> because God wants to use them. Because that's, that's not the point. The point, we're not just friends. We're not just the church because we like everyone. We're, we're the church in spite of those conflicts or in spite of not liking. And it's through that bringing together that Christ does that he wants to make us more loving people. I'm not big on bumper sticker phrases, but over the years I think I've kind of adopted this mantra. No maturity without intimacy and no intimacy without conflict. We don't become mature, which means we don't become like Jesus, without intimacy with God and others. And we don't get intimacy without embracing the conflict that comes. And I can look around this room and a handful of people who aren't here, and in the last six years of doing church, I have cried more tears than ever in my life before. And often it has come through having to humbly face our own brokenness together in relationship and in friendship. And I would say, if we're not willing to engage awkwardness and conflict, I don't know if we want church in the way that the biblical narrative presents it. I think we want something else. If we're not willing to embrace the awkwardness and the conflict that will surely come. And lastly, on mission. A people who orient their entire lives towards the call of God. 
We live together as a people caught up in a universal calling or identity. This idea, this shared identity that Matt talked about last week of becoming like Jesus, that is our foundational calling. The family language that I hit on at the beginning that even defines our ecclesiology of being a son or a daughter of the king, which means inherently we are brothers and sisters in the same family. So we have this shared foundational calling, but then from there Christ sends us into the world to in some ways treat the whole world and all relationships like we're learning to an in intimacy with him and an in intimacy with the body. And so in some ways all the circles start to converge and it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins because they're all pushing us towards the same thing of becoming like Christ, becoming a presence of love in this world. And through that journey as we age and go through 75 years on this planet, I think there will come seasonal callings and ultimately, eventually, I think we'll look back and see a sense of broader, unique vocational calling that each of us carry. And so mission is going to no longer just be a week-long thing we do. It might be that. That's not bad. But it's much more. It's a whole new posture and orientation of seeing our lives as saturated with the call of God. And now everything we do, our jobs, our families, our neighbors, every relationship we have, is infused with this power of church, this power of this new way to be human. And again, I presented them linearly, one through three, but in a sense, all of them are just mixing together. Even Matt talking last week about being with God. Well, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, if you're hanging out with an Afghan refugee family, or if you're getting lunch with someone, whatever you do, the way we treat others, that is how we treat him. In the book of Acts, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus comes, pops up, and Saul becomes Paul, he confronts him on the road, he says, why are you persecuting me? So we see that this is not black and white categories. Time with God doesn't always mean sitting in a prayer room listening to music journaling. Time with God means when we are engaged in the world on mission, too. Time with God means when we are eating food, talking about how we're going to take care of all of our kids over breakfast and engaging each other. So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to talk with two or three people around you. And I just want you to reflect on these three values and just assess which ones resonate, which ones maybe are challenging to you, which ones in this season of life are we spending more time leaning into, and which one of these three are we maybe lacking or have we drifted from? Okay, so talk with each other, and then I'll call us back and transition us to a little bit of worship and reflection. So. All right, I'm going to pull us back to kind of wrap up and then transition us into a little bit of space of worship and prayer. <laughs> I feel like a second grade teacher. There's airplanes flying across the back. <laughs> feel free to linger and continue those dialogues afterward. But I'm just going to give a couple of closing reflections and then we're just going to hold a little space for some prayer and reflection on these themes and on these ideas. Okay. This might sound like a bold statement, but I firmly believe we are living in an age of church reformation, of some of these values 
that are so deeply rooted in church history and in the original community that's founded in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think we, like every generation, are invited into a process of reforming the church to actually align with the values and the end goals that Jesus desires for his people. And there's kind of a famous line, this communication theorist who was a professor in Canada named Marshall McLuhan. He coined this phrase, the medium is the message. And I share that idea about reformation and I share what I'm about to share to maybe try and even help make sense of Karam Deo, because for better and worse, you know, I'm one of the people who's had a fingerprint on shaping it. And so if there's things that are good and if there's things that are bad, it's connected to me. But I think very fundamentally, this idea of the medium being the message, it's, it's trying to understand that forms and structures are not value neutral. So the way you do things affects what it actually is, right? The vehicle shapes the content that you're trying to actually communicate. And I think in our community, and this is not a negative on any other church community, but we just really believe that church in a smaller form, gathered around a table, a beverage, or food, is more conducive to cultivating these values than church like this, where one person talks and it's a seminar. And <laughs> to be a part of this community, I think, is that's, that's just in the foundational values. And we are always going to be a people who emphasize and love and try to promote the awkward, small, little thing that doesn't feel impressive or crazy cool over the big thing. And I think of, I'm just reminded of this week, there was some stuff that happened in mine and Matt's life with our business, and I won't share any details. But basically, Matt, Matt was put in a very difficult situation from a business standpoint, relationally, emotionally, like pretty intense. And, and I was talking to him on the phone, debriefing it. And I got off that phone call and I was, I told him this too, to his face, but I was just blown away by the way Matt responded to this really intense, emotionally charged situation where most of us would have, it would have made logical sense you know, one of those days at work where you come home and you're just spun out and you're just all over the place and your emotions are everywhere and you're swearing. You're, you're like, Matt had every right to do that. And I got off that phone call debriefing it with him and I was just like, holy crap, it works. <laughs> because Matt, <laughs> I think I can say this, I think Matt six years ago would not have responded how he did to this situation. And I know Matt as well as I know any other human in this world, and we have had our fair share of conflict the last six years. And I got to get off that phone call and I'm like, holy cow, Matt's growing and maturing. My friend is growing and maturing. And I just, I was like overwhelmed. It works. Doing life this way in intimate community, it actually works. It's slow and it's messy, and sometimes it's ambiguous, and you're like, what are we doing? But if you don't give up on it, and the three things I feel like it will cost us, and this, is, this isn't an altar call, but it's a little bit of a challenge. If we want church 
as these three things, prayerful family on mission that turns us into mature people of love, it's going to cost us at, at least three things, maybe more. It's going to cost you to take risks and face fears. It's going to cost you conflict with people, and you're going to have to stick in it and not bail and jump ship. And thirdly, it's going to cost you time and energy and food. It's going to cost you food. If you want real relationships, real attachment, risk, conflict, and food. Those are my kind of three challenges and invitations as we reflect and go into another season of small, awkward church in homes or in pubs or in coffee shops, wherever it is. It will cost us those three things. So these guys are going to lead us in a little bit of worship space. If you want to keep chatting with the people you were talking with, feel free. If you want to spend some time praying about maybe the Lord's highlighting something out of these three that he's inviting you into in a new way. And then Matt will come up in about 15 minutes or so and close. So. Yeah. I guess my thoughts as we've been in worship and hearing Dave is just to look around this room for me and say, hey, thank you. Thank you for actually trying to follow Jesus with us. I think the biggest thing more than anything else as I think about what we've talked about the last two weeks is to lock arms with a group of friends who's trying to look at Jesus in all parts of our life. Let's not focus on morality, where, again, I hope those things continue to shift and change in our life. It's actually focused with a group of friends staring at Jesus when we go to work, when we're in our families, when newborn babies don't let us sleep at night, when we have tension with coworkers, and actually become more human, how we were originally designed to look. And as I think, the things that will happen as we continue to look at Jesus together, he will actually call each one of us to sacrifice for other people, to give our lives away, to form family. Because family, we all know if you're a parent or if you have close friends, family is a sacrifice. And it hurts, and it's so worth it. And as we sacrifice, the Lord will lead us to look at him and create deeper spiritual depth in our heart that becomes a shock absorber for our friends around us to have cushion, to be messy, and to hurt and be confused because we have the depth to absorb that as friends and family. And then as we continue to look at Jesus, he's going to ask us things for us to actually say yes to and lead into further mission of bringing hope and goodness to the world around us. That's not a formula, but all those three things at Karam is what we're asking this family to do together over the years and years to come. Because when we say yes to that, I would say that's, that's being church. So Lord, I just say thank you. I'm so, so grateful for the people in this room who are saying yes to look at Jesus in all parts of life and the messiness of our own baggage that we carry and the scars that we've been healed from.
So I'll pray over us as we close. And uh, so stick around afterwards and hang out and be family together or get going. But just know this is a place where you're loved and welcomed. And I'd say this, the noise that for you guys, oh, Jesus, I pray as we lock arms and try to be church, try to be family, try to say yes to you in all parts of our life, that's occupationally, relationally, individually. I pray that we scream out with the prayer of how we started, that one thing we ask of you, Lord, and the thing that we seek is that we may dwell in the house of you all the days of our life. And may that depth be the foundation as we gaze at you, Lord Jesus. May that depth actually give us the energy to be fully human and allow our friends around us to be humans. And that means brokenness. That means successes. That means failures. And may we say yes, Lord Jesus, to love. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this family in this room. May you be worshipped as we stay here and as we go. May the places we step our feet be different because we step there, Lord Jesus, because you live in our hearts and we live life differently. In your name, amen. Be blessed today, Karam.